We are on our Grace series. Who's enjoying the Grace series? We had Pastor Mary start us off with the foundations of grace about three weeks ago, and then Pastor David uh, preached for us the last two Sundays. And last week, he talked about having uh, grace in the midst of our pain, and it was a really powerful one. If you missed it, catch the replay. It's up on our YouTube channel. And so today, I'm going into a message, again, about grace. And I'm going to introduce myself really quick. My name is Victoria Rosa Garcia because, <laughs> thank you. My name is Victoria Rosa Garcia because two names isn't enough. I need three. I am the leader of City Central Men's and Women's Ministry with my husband, Dominic Garcia, who you saw up here on the bass guitar. And we are also the leaders of a ministry called Pure Love and Health Ministries, and we really feel called um, to evangelize in a different way within the church, right? I want to find the people who are lost and you're still in church, and you want to go deeper with God, and you've been coming to church, and you're like, man, I need healing, and I need something deeper, and that's DJ and I have been called to that, so we create safe spaces for people to heal. And we have a woman's Bible study coming up through Pure Love and Health called Purity and Peace. Our next session starts in in June, June right? I was going to say January. In June. And so if you want more information about that, come to me after service. This is a shameless plug. I know Pastor will be totally okay with that um, because we are on a mission to help people heal. Amen? And so... We are continuing with our Grace series, and the title of this message is called, There's Grace in This Place. There's Grace in This Place. And so I'm going to jump into our anchor verse for today. Turn with me to John chapter 1, 14 through 17. John 1, 14 through 17. I'm reading out of the NIV today at least for this verse. I promise I have NLT in there somewhere for pastor. Just want to acknowledge pastor. Thank you so much, Pastor Burgos, for allowing me to preach while he's on sabbatical. We're praying for him. And our first lady, Jesenia, it's an honor to be able to preach the word of the Lord, and I'm God's humbled servant. So John 1, 14 through 17. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, got tickle in my throat. Come on. This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16 says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this moment, Lord God. I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to preach your word, Father God. In this moment, I ask that I decrease and you increase, Father God. That every word come from my mouth come straight from your throne, Lord God. Prepare the hearts for this seed, Father God. Prepare our hearts so that we can learn and take in what it is you want us to do with this. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen and amen. And so I want to start off. We've been learning about grace for the past three or four weeks now. And I want to start off with a question because I like to ask a lot of questions when I preach. And so number one is, what is grace? What is grace? Anybody have an answer? Shout it out. What do you think it is? A brave soul. What is grace? Last service, somebody said God's mercy. I have three definitions for you today. It is the unmerited favor of God. What is unmerited? You don't deserve it. It is the undeserved favor from God. God giving you favor and blessing when you don't deserve it. And so can you think of a time when you have been extended grace when you didn't deserve it? Can you think of a time when you were left off the hook for something that you were guilty for? Anybody here? I have many. I'm going to take you back to when I was in seventh grade. I'm going to share a testimony. When I think of an example of grace in my own life, I flash back to the seventh grade. Any of you remember your seventh grade experiences? For me, the year is 1998. NSYNC's I Want You Back is my favorite song. I have butterfly clips in my hair, a choker around my neck. I have baggy jeans and my favorite white sketchers that have a posh spice vibe to them. Miss Taylor is my seventh grade pre-algebra teacher at High Horizons Magnet School on Palisades Avenue. Anybody here went to High Horizons? And you did? <laughs> and in Bridgeport, and it's approximately 5.30 at night. I'm sitting next to my mom in the back of the classroom during a parent-teacher conference. And Miss Taylor looks concerned. I'm feeling the butterflies of anxiety in the pit of my stomach as my mom furrows her brow at the C in my math class on my report card. And she's like, how did Victoria drop from a B to a C? I remember my mom asking, and Miss Taylor's answered something like, well, her grades have been decreasing consistently over the past marking period, and I have a record here that I sent home all the tests that fell below 70, and it shows in my record that you signed them and Victoria submitted them in her file. Do you know where this is going? Full transparency, church, I had no idea when I forged my mom's signature on these tests that it would come back to haunt me. Who knew, right? I remember my mom's response. I signed the test, and she looked at me for an honest opinion, and I nodded my head. Yes, mom, you signed the test. <laughs> Every time. Miss Taylor immediately stood up and says, I have them in her portfolio in my closet. Let me go get them. And turned and disappeared into the closet, and I knew my life was coming to an end. It was over, folks. If you know my parents, done. My TV's gone. My personal phone was gone. Everything was about to go out the door. But when you're in seventh grade and you're lying, you're stubborn about it, right? And so I stood my ground. I held my composure and waited and waited for Miss Taylor to return, and after some time, she came back to her desk empty-handed and said, I must have left my files at home. I can't seem to find them. And she looked at my mom and smiled embarrassingly and continued to explain how she had noted them in her folder 
there were five tests and they were there. My mom was also embarrassed because she's like, am I getting old? I don't remember signing these things. And I just played it off and sighed in relief. And to myself, I said, thank you, God. And I remember whispering to myself this and made a vow and I was like, I seriously need to bring my math grade up and pay more attention to percentages and solving for the variable X and trying to make friends with a common enemy called exponents. I hate those things. Grace. I was extended undeserved favor in this moment when I truly deserve to be punished for lying to my mom, lying to my teacher, not to mention committing a federal crime of signing and forging my mom's signature, which I didn't find out till I was in high school that that was a thing. I was embarrassed for my own behavior and I always wondered if Miss Taylor really had left her files home or extended undeserving grace to me in that moment because she knew exactly what I had done. Either way, this grace propelled me to do better and be better. Next time a poor grade came along, I actually gave it to my mom to sign it because the thought of getting caught on that, I just, it was too much. And I put extra effort in raising my math grade in the next semester, grace unmerited, undeserved favor causes us to respond. And so can you think of a time when undeserving grace was extended to you, like I asked before, and how did it make you feel or respond? Because for some of us in this situation, you would have been like, I got away with it. And I'm going to take, I'm going to do it again. And in some situations, I could tell you in another case, that's exactly what I did. I was like, ooh, I got away with it. I'm going to do it again, right? And we take advantage of grace. So in our anchor verse today, we read John 1, 14 through 17. It says, the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus left his home in heaven, guys, to live among us mere humans. But he always wanted that personal relationship with us. God was always wanting that personal relationship with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Keep this in mind. Jesus is full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning him, crying out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he came before me. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace. Some versions say grace on top of grace, right? For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth was given through Christ Jesus. And so when we look at this anchor verse today, it begins with Jesus. And when we think of the word grace, our minds may go to Jesus in the New Testament. But I have a question to ask and I want to ask, where did grace begin? Where do we first see grace in the Bible? Grace started in the heart of God. It didn't, it's not a New Testament, just a New Testament teaching, right? Grace is a part of God's character and was birthed in the heart of God since the beginning. So point number one is, in the beginning, there was grace. Grace isn't just found in the New Testament and in Christ's death, even though we love Jesus for that, it's 
found throughout scripture, starting with creation and the earth and the garden of Eden, because grace is a part of God's character and it starts with God. In the word, here's a note, when you're reading a word and God is exposing his character to us, he's showing us who he is, we need to take note and we have to hold on to that tightly because our enemy will always try to discredit God. The way the serpent tried to discredit God to eat, especially in our minds. And so have you ever thought, knowing that God is a God of grace, have you ever thought God is out to get me? or God is not for me, or God doesn't truly forgive me, or God doesn't want what's best for me. That's the enemy trying to make you and discredit God's character, but it's important to know that God's character is gracious. Sometimes when we see God's discipline, especially in the Old Testament stories, we can sometimes give God an unloving, ungracious reputation when in reality he's always been gracious i'm gonna prove it to you i'd like to take a journey through scripture starting from the beginning to identify some moments of grace way back in genesis but i need your help preaching can y'all help me preach today and so when i go like this right i'm gonna give you a cue you're gonna say there's grace in this place let's try it ready one two three Oh, y'all are good at this. You guys got it. And so creation, Genesis 1-1 says, the earth is void and formless. It has no form. And God then creates something out of nothingness. God continues to create this beauty. Have you seen the earth? Waterfalls, canyons, beautiful things here. And he made it out of nothing. The Bible doesn't tell us why the earth was in this condition either. And so it was just formless. What would move the heart of God to make beauty out of nothingness? There's grace in this place. Okay. There's grace in this place. The heart of God had grace. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to make something awesome out of this nothingness. And he continues to do that today. We bring him emptiness, he makes amazingness. We bring him ashes, he makes beauty. There's grace in this place. The Garden of Eden, the fall, Genesis chapter 3. God gives them strict instruction. You can eat of anything but this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they fall. They Eve believes the serpent. She eats it. She convinces Adam to eat it. But there's God establishes a sacrificial system at that moment. They sin. He, he kills an animal, the shedding of the blood to cover the sin. He takes the skin of that animal and covers their nakedness as an act of grace. But there was another thing that he did that was gracious. There was another thing he did that was gracious, and we don't see it, Josh. Sometimes we have to spiritually squint at these stories sometimes because we're like, what? That's grace? He threw them out of the garden. Why was that an act of grace? Because there was a tree in the garden called the tree of life. And had they eaten of the tree of life after they had eaten of the forbidden tree, they would have stayed in their sin forever. 
Sometimes God's discipline is actually an act of grace. And we give God this bad reputation that he's mean and he's this and he's that when really there's, come on somebody, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because he had a bigger plan of salvation. He was like, okay, plot twist. We're going to change it up real quick. They ate of this tree. That's okay. We're going to kick them out of this garden. And I have a bigger plan of salvation for them. That includes another Adam, another man known as Jesus Christ. And this is what it means in our anchor verse, that there's grace on top of grace. Sometimes God's discipline is actually an act of grace. And so Noah, God has grace on his family, floods the earth, spares their lives in the midst of a flood. And then he's like, you know what? I'm probably never going to destroy the earth like that again. I'm going to send them a rainbow because there's Moses. His life was spared in an act of grace. He ends up in the palace, is raised there. He becomes a murderer, murders someone, and is called out of the desert to lead the people out of captivity because there's Abraham took matters into his own hands in order to conceive a child, and God still blessed him with his own child, even though he disobeyed because there's Isaac, Jacob, the establishment of judges, the establishment of kings, even though God was like, I don't, I'm your, you know, I'm the king. I, I have a plan for you. No, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. He still gives it to them. And then they start to become unfaithful. Israel starts prostituting herself out to other gods and putting other idols in front of gods, right? And so we see that Babylon comes and destroys Israel, destroys the temple. And we're like, oh man, that's God's discipline. He's a mean God. But look at this. There were so many prophets who gave warnings to Israel before that destruction happened. Micah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's whole life was dedicated to warn Israel. They called him the weeping prophet. 40 years of caution. And they didn't listen to him. In fact, instead of being like, oh, thank you so much, Jeremiah, letting us know that God's going to destroy us. I'm going to change my life. They were like, "Mm, actually, I don't like what you're saying, Jeremiah. We're going to beat you up and put you in prison. And that's what they did. And guess what happened? Babylon comes. Nebuchadnezzar's army comes and destroys them, takes them into captivity. That's why we have the book of Esther, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How did they get to Babylon? That's how they got there. They're taken into captivity because of their disobedience to God. Israel didn't keep a Sabbath, and they kept worshiping other idols. For 70 years, they were in captivity in Babylon. But they're still, and God used Daniel to be a voice. And King Cyrus, who was the next king after Nebuchadnezzar, released the Israelites out of captivity. You go through the entire Old Testament, story after story, you will find a gracious God. But here's the situation with the Old Testament system. It wasn't a solution to sin. It could not solve sin. It was a system to identify sin. 
It was a system to point to say, I'm a sinner, and this is how I'm a sinner. And then there was a system of shedding of blood of goats and lambs in order to cover your sin, but it's like a repetitive cycle. When does it end? And so the law, our anchor verse says, the law that came from Moses, there's a lot of laws, but let's just start with the first one, the tablets, the Ten Commandments. We're going to do a little test right now, okay? You don't have to raise your hand on this, but we're going to see if anyone here has ever kept all of the Ten Commandments. Spoiler alert, we're all going to fail this test. So, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. Has anybody had an idol in front of God? An idol could be money or children, right? Our marriage, some, anything that we put in front of God, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. All of us are out on this one somewhere. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall. The whole point here is that we can't keep it. We are imperfect in a fallen world. The law was merit-based. It was works-based. It was a works-based system that required obedience but did not provide a true resolution to sin, death, sickness, or man's shortcomings. And we just went, ten, we just went over 10 commandments, but the Old Testament in my quick Google search showed that there are about 613 laws found in the Old Testament. It's impossible. In order to be cleansed from this sin in the Old Testament, you needed to shed the blood of animals to cover your sin. And after a while, this became a routine to the Israelites. They did it like it was nothing. Their hearts were away from God, and God said it. Your sacrifices, they mean nothing to me because your heart is far from me. And it was a means to identify the sin. Thou shall not lie. Oops, I lied. I'm a liar, right? I can identify where I stand with God. I can identify my sin, but humanity needed something more. Humanity needed something better. And so a gracious God had to create a gracious system. Isaiah, the gospel of the Old Testament, prophesied that there would be something greater. There would be someone greater, a Messiah who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So going back to our anchor verse, we can understand now. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ. And while God has always been gracious, the means of having a relationship with him, the system that was in place in the Old Testament in order to get right with God, in order to have a relationship with God, was missing grace in this place. This leads us to the New Testament. What role does grace play in the New Testament? Well, quite frankly, without grace, we wouldn't have salvation through Jesus Christ. Grace is the main ingredient in the recipe of salvation. Leads us to point number two. No grace, no salvation. But if you know salvation, you know grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift 
from God, not by works that no one can boast. If it wasn't for God's grace and Jesus' ultimate perfect sacrifice on the cross, we would not have salvation. Salvation through Christ Jesus is not by works so that any of us can boast. We can't say, oh, I ran to Jerusalem. I got baptized in the Jordan like Jesus. I did, I did started my ministry at 33 like him. None of that matters. That cannot earn me grace. That cannot earn me heaven. It is not based on how much discipline you have or how much time you sacrifice for the Lord. Though after you're saved, those things can bring us closer to God if we have discipline in reading the word and things like that. But that doesn't get my name written in the book of life. The only thing that gets my name written in the book of life is my faith in Christ and the grace of God. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation and earn our way into heaven. And every other religion religion in the world bases your goodness and your holiness on how well you perform. Judaism, law. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and more focus on what you can accomplish and what you can do to earn your good graces with your higher power but Christianity salvation through Jesus Christ is not a works-based religion. It's solely by the grace of God and our faith in Jesus Christ. And if it wasn't for grace, we wouldn't have salvation. And that would look like forever being condemned by our sin, living a life completely separated for God. And we would not have access to deliverance, healing, miracles through the mighty name of Jesus. But instead, because God's love for us, because of the God's unmerited favor and his grace on us, he gives us this gift. And we are forgiven for our sins when we repent to God and accept Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. We don't have to shed the blood of animals anymore. We don't have to do all these works. This is a heart and mind decision. When we choose salvation, this it happens in the innermost part of our body, within our spirit and soul. It's deep and it's not a surface thing. It happens within. It looks like a life of relationship with him. It's personal, it's intimate, it's deep. An eternity spent with a holy God inheriting an eternal kingdom with that he established. It's personal, it's intimate, it's deep. Having a purpose and calling when we get saved so that we can work for the glory of God, not to say, here's my dream, God bless it, but to say, I lay everything down. I lay it all down to follow you and pick up my cross daily. It's personal. It's intimate. It's deep. And once we experience the grace of God through salvation church, we're never the same. Grace and salvation changes us. And this leads to point number three. Once it changes us, it starts to produce good fruit in us. The number one way it produces fruit in us is that it produces thankfulness within us and we can express our love. Luke 7, 40 through 47 says, little parable, that Jesus said when Mary came into Simon's house and started anointing Jesus' feet and crying over his feet. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed me, 
Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarius was usually a daily wage. And the other 50. So one guy owes this money lender $500, the other one 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more, asked Jesus. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven, the guy who owed $500, probably more thankful than the guy who owed 50. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Those shown great grace can offer great love and great thankfulness. Has anyone in the house been shown great grace? Has anyone in the house... So can you produce great gratefulness and great love because of that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's a scandal of grace. People can't handle this concept, right? Because they say, I'm a good person, but the Bible truly says none of us are good, only God is good. You can be a great person by the world's eyes and never make your way to heaven, and you could be a mass murderer and make your way to heaven. That is the scandal of grace. That's the reality. You could have done nothing wrong in your life, but if you didn't ask Christ in your life through faith and grace and you're not saved, you don't spend an eternity with him. That's what the Bible shows us. And it's a scandal. And people sometimes can't handle that truth. But grace shows us God's goodness. And the, it is the goodness of God that brings salvation. Romans 2, 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? In another version, it says, don't you know, it is the goodness of God that leads to salvation. It is God's goodness that leads us to step forward in salvation. And some of us who were raised with legalism, this is a hard concept because it's not God's judgment. The Bible says it's not his wrath. It's not his discipline. It is his goodness that leads to salvation. Think of a time when God's goodness led you to a moment of repentance and closeness to him. He's so good to us. Lastly, our anchor verse says in John 1:14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. This is a concept and teaching that is so important. Grace and truth have to hold hands. They have to hold hands. Now that we have a good understanding of what grace is, unmerited favor, undeserved favor, we got to be cautious. We don't fall into the pitfalls of abusing grace. Don't abuse grace. And I'm going to help you as your big sis today on ways you're not going to do that. Grace and truth have to hold hands. Write it, draw a picture in your notes. Grace, truth, they're friends. Grace without truth is abuse. 
Grace without truth is abuse. What are you abusing? You're abusing God's grace. You abuse God's grace and say, it's okay to sin. God's going to forgive me anyway. It's not all grace and no truth. Grace and truth go hand in hand. Truth without grace leads you to accuse. I'll say it again. Truth, if you're all truth with no grace, you're an accuser. And the Bible says the accuser of the brethren, that is what the enemy does to God's people. We accuse God, we accuse others, we accuse ourselves. You accuse and attack and judge a person with facts. Perhaps someone lied to you or hurt you or shamed you. Those are the facts. They were wrong. But if you just focus on the facts, you leave no room for grace. And you were shown much grace. How could you not extend grace to others and yourself? The truth is, let's just say, Daisy, we're on 985, hanging out, and someone cuts us off. And we're like, oh, this person, mm -hmm. right? My husband knows. I got a little bit of road rage, church. It's not obvious, but if it's not obvious, I do, right? And so I, I'm over here, like, pulling up next to the person, like, downing them. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're like, look at little church girl over here getting crazy on the road. And my husband's like, calm down. I'm like, they cut me off. But little do I know that that person is rushing on their way to the hospital because their father just got noticed that he's on his deathbed. When we just judge by the facts, and we know that perception is reality. We never have the whole story. <laughs> we think we have the facts. The reality is, is that we have to leave room for grace. Grace and truth are friends. They go hand in hand. And so Dr. Henry Cloud, one of my favorite uh, authors, and he is a clinical psychologist, a Christian, and a New York Times best-selling author. He wrote this book called Changes That Heal. I love books, and I love to refer them to people. But this one is really about healing from um, hurts, past hurts, and helping you bond with people again. Because how many know when we've been hurt, we put walls up and we keep people out, right? And he has this model called a maturity model and part of maturing is allowing grace and truth to hold hands and see he says when grace and truth are a healing combination they got to come together because our anchor verse for today said that grace and truth reflects jesus and we know jesus is the ultimate healer grace and truth are a healing combination because they deal directly with one of the main barriers to all growth guilt we have emotional difficulties because we have been injured. Either someone has sinned against us or have rebelled or we have sinned or some combination of the two. And so I'm here to tell you as your big sister in Christ today is that today grace can transform your life. Some of us after hearing this, you need your call to action, your homework. You need to text somebody and email somebody because God has been so gracious to you and you have not been gracious. Some of you need to take a walk up to this altar today and really come back to your father. Some of us need to get right and align our lives with the Lord and align our lives with the people in our life. And grace is here for you.
You have an invitation to heal from guilt, shame, rebellion, pride. You know why? Because there's a double portion of grace today. It starts with God and it continues with Jesus. Grace on top of grace. You have two scoops of grace. It's really good, especially if it's milk craft ice cream. Two scoops of grace. First, it's found in God's heart and it's manifested in his son, Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. There is a call to action just like little Vicky in seventh grade. Grace upon her. She was like, thank you, God, that my mom is not going to kill me. And then I started studying for math and I mastered exponents like a boss because grace upon grace, it causes us to act. God covers our mistakes and we too are like the Israelites. We're God's chosen people, right? But maybe God has sent you a few warnings through a few prophets. Maybe God has given you ample time but this is your invitation to come to him, to really get right with him. God gives us an opportunity to repent. He gives us an opportunity to have an intimate relationship with him through Christ. He will give you a purpose and a job to do in his kingdom. And then when all fades away and we pass from this earth, he gives us an opportunity to live with him forever. We are so grateful for grace because without grace, we wouldn't have salvation. And so we're gonna do something out of form right now. We're just gonna sit and we're gonna think about the moments when God showed us his kindness and grace because the enemy has been bullying some of us and telling us that God is not good and God is not for you and God is this and that. And you're gonna remind that enemy right now, you know what? This is the way God showed up for me in my life. This was when I deserved hell. I deserved to get caught. I deserved jail time. I deserved X, Y, and Z. And by the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God over my life, I'm still here. I'm still here. And so take your moment. Stephen's going to play. We're going to ask some of the worship team to come up and sing over you some heavenly songs take a moment right now to think about all the goodness that god has done to you because that's what leads to salvation and then when you're ready the prayer team's coming up here to the front i'm gonna invite the prayer team up here and when you're ready you're gonna come up and get prayed for it could be for salvation it could be to realign your life with Christ. It could be for a petition that you need God's grace to cover in this season. Whatever it may be, church, you're here for a purpose. And God put me here to remind you that you can't leave out of those doors the same way you came in. He's not going to let you leave the same way you came in.